0: We have record unaffordability in the Melbourne housing market at the moment and this is also affecting rental prices but we're yet to see government policy that works to address this. There's lots of ideas around of course from curving negative gearing to building more social housing but one approach that's helping elsewhere and starting to gain traction here is the built to build to rent model and uh, to speak more about this Nerida Knisby is Chief Economist with the RAA Group. Uh, She's speaking on a panel at M Pavilion this week about Build to Rent and uh, REA runs the realestate.com websites as well as flatmates.com and they're a backer of Launch Housing and pretty engaged in the affordability space and it's really good to have you with us Nerida. Thanks for having me. And I I suppose we should first speak about uh, this Build to Rent idea, the concept of it. Can you give us a bit of a background?
1: Yeah, so it's, um, it's called multifamily in the US, but here in Australia we are referring to it as build-to-rent. And, and what it is is uh, large companies uh, building um, apartment blocks or, or building uh, groups of townhouses with the aim to just rent them out uh, as opposed to sell them individually. And so, so what it is is that um, typically uh, in the US, Uh, You you do have a lot of rental housing provided in this way. In Australia, we don't have any and and almost all our rental housing is provided by uh, mum and dad investors as opposed to the large
0: companies. And how is it different to social housing? Uh, it's different to social
1: housing in that it's available to everyone. So there there is uh, different um, price categories at which build to rent is, is provided. So uh, if you go to the US, you can get very expensive build to rent product and, and that can include things like having you know a, a, a swimming pool and amazing gyms and and really aimed at higher income levels. But you can also go towards the social housing end as well, and, and providing more affordable housing. For, for people on lower income.
0: And why is it then that we, if this model is working in the US, and I understand in the UK as well, we have this idea of, of build to rent, why isn't it happening here? What's the barrier?
1: Well, at the moment, all of our tax incentives go towards uh, mum and dad investors. So if you have a look at things like negative gearing, if you have a look at capital gains tax concession, uh, all those things really uh, encourage individuals to own rental properties. Uh, the other thing that's made it challenging for, for groups to get into this sector is that, uh, rental yields have historically been very, very low. So, uh, from a financial perspective, it just hasn't made sense. And, and so those are probably the two biggest barriers to it being developed here in Australia.
0: And so if those barriers still exist, why is it that, that the, you, um, you guys at REA, but other people, architects and the like, are starting to think about this model as working in Australia?
1: Well, the main reason is that a lot of other investments now are are getting similar yields. So a lot of it is really a financial incentive. Uh, But the other thing too is that a lot of groups from overseas are are, are really, really interested in investing in this sector. So there's money that's looking to come offshore and invest in this sector. Uh, But there's also a lot of local groups that are really interested as well. So groups like Merback and Lend-Lease have typically focused more on commercial property but are now starting to see some merits. Uh, from an income perspective to develop this type of product, uh, but also from an investment perspective as well.
0: And what about, I mean, I know that, that REA is really looking at that, the real estate side of things, but when you see it from a consumer point of view, is this a good outcome for somebody to end up in a, in a build-to-rent community in sort of that long-term rental arrangement? Is it, is it ideal for people to end up in that sort of situation? Yeah, look, it does provide
1: a better situation for long-term renters. And, and I think one of the challenges at the moment we have in Australia that if you're a renter in a, you know, in, in a home in Australia, you've got no guarantee of tenure. And so, you know, you may go into a rental property, um, that the owner of that rental property may decide to sell the property and the new owners decide to move in or, you know, or they may decide or the owners themselves may decide to move in. So there's no guarantee that you can stay in the property long-term with uh, Build to rent. you do typically find that if you've got one large organisation that owns a whole lot of the, you know, owns a whole, say, apartment block, uh, typically they don't, you know, they don't want to move into it themselves obviously, but if they sell the, the apartment block, they'll sell to another large scale investor who, who also won't want to move into them. So, so these properties are, are designed to be, uh, rented over the long term. And what we find in places like the US and, and Germany, Germany is, is very common, is that people can stay in these properties their whole life if they want. You know, they can stay in these properties for 20, 30, 40 years and, um, and live quite comfortably. Uh, the other thing too in the US is that a lot of these build-to-rent developers will we will put these, um, you know, will develop all around the US. And they make it quite easy for people to move um, either to upgrade to a bigger home when they start to have families or, or move to other cities. So, you know, if you, they, they may have one in Chicago, but they have one in New York as well. So it's quite easy to move from one um, bill to rent development to another bill to rent. So there's kind of a lot of benefits that that... Has led to it being a, a quite popular uh, way of living in other parts of the world.
0: Nerida Conisby's is um, speaking with us. She's with REA Group. We're talking about a, a new uh, way of providing affordable housing, uh, and it's happening around the world, not here in Australia. It's called build to rent communities, and I wonder whether this that we're talking about this as a as a solution. Nerida, we've kind of giving up on the idea that everybody's going to own a home or that that is the ultimate for uh, a, an individual or a family to end up in a, in a home that they own themselves?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, it is really challenging for people to get into the market and one of the reasons I recommend people... to. To buy is because being a long-term renter is so tough in Australia, and it's different to, to how it is uh, in part, you know, in, in the US and Europe. And the reason that's so tough is that partly you don't have that certainty of tenure that I spoke about before, but also that you are at the mercy of the market with with rents, and you know, mar- the rent the market sets rental levels. And if you uh, you're on a you know if you're earning an income, that's that's possibly not a problem if your rent's increasing, you know, year to year. But once you hit retirement age, uh, if you aren't living in a home that you own and you're still paying rent, it does put you at at a pretty tricky situation, particularly if you're in, say, in a Melbourne or in a Sydney, where rents can increase quite dramatically over, you know, a a five to ten year time period. So I guess that's the other challenge too, that, you know, that, that renting is tough. Of people on fixed incomes, and we haven't really come up with a solution here in Australia as, as to how to deal with that.
0: Yeah, and uh, is this the only model that, that has the potential to, to deal with that issue?
1: Look, I mean, affordability can be dealt with in just so many ways, and I, you know, I think one of the most easiest ways is just to build more housing, and you know, Melbourne has done that quite well, if we compare it to how, how Sydney has done it. I mean, other ways is to try and move jobs, and you know, at the moment, the majority of our jobs growth is in Melbourne and Sydney, and, and that's really what's leading to this situation where housing is is becoming so expensive. Uh, you know, we can look at tax breaks for first home buyers, and you know that's working in Melbourne at the moment. If you have a look at the, the housing finance figures that have come through, uh, there there has been an increase in first home buyer activity. So you know, those sorts of things work. I think though, the real challenges come. You know, it's hard. I think for, for people on on good incomes or even you know me incomes but if you're a very low income earner, uh, being in a city like Melbourne where it is becoming more and more expensive it, it, it is an extremely tough situation and if we don't have a viable solution to provide housing to very low-income people, then, then it does become a, a very difficult place for these people to live.
0: And REA is, you know, in the real estate industry, and it's uh, interesting to me that you're focused on affordability. It, I would have guessed that, that higher rents, higher house prices would benefit the real estate industry, but is that not, is that not the case, or what, what's the incentives for REA to be looking at policy solutions in this area?
1: Well, we, we deal with all sorts of occupiers. I mean, we, we have flatmates.com.au to, to, to help with people who are looking to share. We, we cover off rental accommodation. You yeah, know, rent is a big part of our business. Um, we, we we work with buyers as well. We work with investors. We work with 1st home buyers. So, I mean, we, we really do deal right across the board in terms of people's home journey or housing journey and you know from our perspective it, it does make sense that people can live the way that they want to live and and that's a core cool, core cool part of what we are
0: so what, where do you think this is going to go i mean the, the discussion at m pavilion there's some fantastic people going to be speaking about this issue do you think this might be something that policymakers might put in their toolkit
1: Look at the moment; it, it really is being driven by the, um, the the investment community. I mean, you've got people like Sam Chirasco, who's a who's a private developer, and he's he's very keen to get into this sector. Uh, you have big companies like Lend Lease and um, Mervac, who who have also flagged that they're really interested. Um, from a policy perspective, you know, we haven't really made it. Uh, you know, I don't think from a policy. Perspective, if it's really been dealt with appropriately. I think at the moment, uh, you know, there's still a lot of blockages. Our tax system continues to favour, uh, you know, one type of owner of, of rental housing, which is which is kind of a mum and dad investor type model. Uh, there's even been a few blockages more recently where, where some of the taxation to offshore investors uh, we've changed to discourage this type of investment uh, in Australia. So I think from a policy perspective there's still a lot that needs to be done but uh, certainly from an you know investor perspective that there is lots and lots of interest not just from local investors but overseas investors as well.
0: Thanks Nerida, it's been really interesting and, uh, you can catch Nerida, uh, this Wednesday, 18th of October down at M Pavilion at six o'clock. It's a free event and she's one of about six people talking about the build to rent community model. And, um, yeah, thanks for sharing your expertise with us today on Triple R. Thanks for having me. It is World Food Day, as I mentioned earlier, and, uh, we know that too many people around the world don't have access to nutritious food, but few of us think about the food deserts we have here in Melbourne. Uh, the Community Grocer does, though. It's establishing food markets across the city, including uh, at the Atherton Gardens housing estate in Fitzroy, and Laura Canner is the general manager of the Community Grocer, and she's popped by. It's not market day today, Laura. No, tomorrow is market day. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, because you don't have to do anything today to prepare for it at all. Oh, no. yeah, no, nothing, nothing. <laughs> Full day off. <laughs> uh, but tell us about the community grocer and your model because it's it's not like every market what's what's your kind of goals
2: yeah that's right so we're a we're a pop-up green grocer so we sell the whole range of fruit and veg and at different markets as well we sell dry goods pantry items like flour and rice and spices um and what we really wanted to address is not necessarily a place in the city like Fitzroy or Carlton where we hold markets it's not a food desert in terms of uh the amount of food around there there's a Coals and there are Woolies and there's food works, but it is a, f- a food desert in terms of affordability. So um, often grocery stores can really price people out, especially if you're living on low income. And so you might have all that food around you, but if you can't afford it, then you can't access it. So we run on very low overheads. We don't pay rent anywhere. We don't have a brick and mortar. We're a pop-up in each space and we partner um, with the housing estates in our inner urban markets and then with, um, either community centers or schools outside the city in those markets. And so we sell as affordably as we can. So I buy from a wholesaler, some direct from farmers, market up just very slightly just to cover our own operating costs. And then we sell for three or four hours on the day as much fresh produce as we can. So we sell, um, maybe, you know, $1,500 of fresh produce each day at each market.
0: Well, and how many markets do you have now?
2: We currently run five, five markets. Gee, and so yeah. what,
0: and what's the, what's the time frame since you sort of kicked off the community said to? the yeah. point you're at at the moment.
2: Sure, it's about three years. So we ran uh, the first market, the flagship markets in Carlton, in the public housing estates. That's on Friday. And all of these markets are always open to everyone. So we might target a specific community that we think has low food access, but the idea is that everyone in the community should come and should support it. Um So yeah, we, we ran that for two years, and after that we opened a, a market in Faulkner in partnership with Mary Health. And the next to ra- open after that... Yeah, we had Fitzroy and we had um, Mernda and then we opened one in Wyndham.
0: So you're really yeah. going, the it's not just in the city, you're actually going out into the suburbs as well.
2: Yeah, we are. And that was a different approach. Our, our core model is to really work within the low-income housing estates to activate those as food hubs and to make sure that there's lots of fresh, affordable produce within those housing estates. And then as our organisation grew and other organisations started to hear about us, we've been reached out to by... Um, like Open Food Network and Sustain and other local councils who noticed their own lack of affordable produce in their areas. So all of those outer markets, so say we're opening one in Cardinia next month, we have one in Wyndham, and we have one out in Mernda, those are all in partnership. People have pulled us in to say we have low food access, and, and those have been project-based and supported by the council, um, and really that's an interesting diversion because it's not about necessarily your low income and thus your low access because the grocery stores around you are expensive. There it was more, well, people might be middle income and and full-time working families, but really under a crippling kind of mortgage crisis. So still not able to feed their family the full range of fruit and veg they should because um, they're having to choose between Between fruit and veg and paying a mortgage, yeah, those kind of
0: impossible choices. That's right. It sounds like a real campaign approach that you've got. It's not. I mean, it's about fresh fruit and veg making it available Mm. clearly, uh, but it's coming from somewhere else. I mean, what's what's the driver for you behind running these markets? Yeah, definitely. It's really coming from a place of. It is a basic
2: human right. This is what v- World Food Day is all about, as well. It is a basic human right to have access to fresh, fresh fruits and vegetables, and to be able to feed your family what you want to feed them, what you think is healthy and culturally appropriate, and um, and to keep everyone really vibrant. So, food access should be for all, and if we can help facilitate that, that's what the markets are all about.
0: And so, you you mentioned that word, word cult- culture. Mm. Uh, what are you selling? It does it range? Uh, does it provide food and fresh food for all different kinds of Um, cuisine.
2: Yeah, hugely. And we're really, each market... I mean, if you go, if you spent the whole week going to the community grocer markets, you'd see a lot of variance in what we sell from market to market, because each one is entirely tailored to the community that is there. So, you know, in Fitzroy, our community is is largely Vietnamese, and then also from the Horn of Africa. So, you know, we sell a lot of um, bitter melon, and we sell watermelons, and we sell coconuts, and we sell uh, plantains, we sell lemongrass, we sell like a whole range of things that you might not be able to find very affordably just in a supermarket and we're constantly feedback driven so every week if people tell me hey i really want you to get this next thing in next week then i can just get it in next week no problem at all
0: Good on you, Laura Canner. She's general manager of the Community Grocer, and uh, the Community Grocer has five sites in Melbourne, and it's expanding. And it's World Food Day, and we're celebrating access to fresh produce with Laura this morning. And when did you get involved with with food as really this sort of human right? Yeah, me personally, uh, from a very very young age. I grew up in I grew up
2: in Seattle in the states. Um, in a very inner urban home, but um, my mom and my grandparents all procured and produced their own food. So we grew up with chickens and grapevines and raspberry vines, all just in a very small urban setting. And then I went to college, University of Washington. And actually, it's a funny, it's an interesting full circle. It was when I was attending World Food Day as a, a freshman in college in Rome at the FAO. And um, and that's where I really opened my eyes to this politics of food world that is so complex and needs so much addressing, especially in the US. So ever since then, all through university, I studied food politics and food access, and I've worked in that space uh, throughout my life. I mean, my short life, I'm only 27. But <laughs> <laughs> throughout my life, I uh, often work in hospitality and then on the side doing food access projects like uh, making a food forest in Seattle, the Beacon Hill Food Forest, or campaigning against GMOs, or working in community kitchens. Um, but since immigrating into Australia, uh, for the last what year and a half, I've just focused only solely on I'm going to work only in food access, and and so I've just been doing that since. And now the community grocer is able to employ me full time, so that's worked out really well.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, you know we're becoming more and more aware that there is enough food for the world. There is mm. enough food there. We're wasting a lot mm-hmm. of it. And is that also part of what you do? Is is trying to help reduce waste? Oh, 100. It's it's our each
2: market is a completely waste-free system except for recycling and those Dang polystyrene boxes that we get with our broccoli. I can't figure out how to solve <laughs> that. But, um, yeah, each waste or each market is zero food waste. That's for sure. So we get in fresh from the wholesale market that day using a wholesaler. And then whatever I'm not able to sell during those exact market hours, we all, we push through social media. So we'll create, uh, $25 veggie boxes, fruit and veg mixed boxes. I'll post it on Facebook, say delivery just to that one suburb only or pick up that one suburb only. Um, so this really hyper localized box delivery scheme that's fairly ad hoc at the moment but uh, that allows us to sell each market out and by doing that, we have no food waste at all. We're able to then actually break, break, our, break ourselves even. Um, and anything that is food waste, say the outside of a cabbage leaf or lettuce leaves, we compost on site in, in partnership often with the cultivating community gardens that are on site.
0: And yeah. I mean, we, we're really familiar with all sorts of different, mar- we have all sorts of different markets mm. in Melbourne. Where, where is this different, you think? Is it really around the, the cost, how it, how it differentiates, say, between a, a farmer's market or just the, the, the kind of every, yeah, Preston market or whatever mm. it might be?
2: Yeah, I think the price is certainly a difference and that's an intentional difference. Um, we're about 30% cheaper than a supermarket. That's across our whole line of fruit and veg. Compared to maybe Preston market or South Melbourne market, maybe we're 10 to 15% cheaper. It's hard to be significantly cheaper than them because they buy in really big quantities that we don't. Um, but I think the biggest thing that sets us apart is that we really are a harken back to this idea of a very localized, community-oriented Uh, fruit and vegetable market. So, it's exact, it's feedback driven 100% of the time. And, and if it, if the hours need to switch, if our, the, what we're selling needs to switch, if people need to get something in extra, I'll just, you know, I can get them in for them and give it to it wholesale. So it's that feedback and that really community base that I think that different, that differentiates us the
0: most. And you're uh, opening up some more sites. So how is it that you scout for, for new locations for the community grocer? Yeah, right. So part of our core business
2: model is that we we go into the low income housing estates, work with the community there, um, get their feedback on what they need and then we open there so that market that's going to open will be Flemington and we that was facilitated through a um, grant from Mooney Valley from the city council there so we'll open there in November and then uh, with Cardinia that that was not these outer sites, we didn't necessarily scout. They scouted us. So people came to us, uh, the Myrna Council or Sustain on behalf of the Cardinia Shire, um, to bring us out there on those project-based things. Same with the window market. Yeah, so it's a yeah.
0: community-led... It's the, the local government is is wanting to provide yeah. more opportunities for people.
2: Yeah, and otherwise, we're scouting out other locations that are low-income housing estates within the city of melbourne um or you know within the kind of the core suburbs and so that's that's where we'll continue our growth and then these other ones we'll just take these projects as they come to us and see if it's a viable one
0: yeah and each of the markets are weekly is that how it works? yes
2: each of the markets are weekly we're always rain or shine we really want to make sure that we're totally rooted in the community and that we're reliable so we're going to be there every week even if it's a rainy week and we're out uh, getting the wind blown on us
0: yeah well, good luck with it. Laura Canna, she's General Manager of the Community Grocer. It's World Food Day and we're celebrating access to nutritious food. Uh, the Community Grocer has five sites at the moment uh, in inner city of Melbourne, but also out in the suburbs. And it's expanding another couple opening later this year in November. And if you want to get in touch with them, thecommunitygrocer.com.au is the place to go. And it's a real mix. like it's the, A lot of their sites are in the uh, housing estate areas, but everybody goes there. And actually we heard about the community grocer from listeners that have tipped us off on it and thought we might be interested and we are oh that's wonderful and uh, <laughs> thank you so much for coming in to triple r and telling us more yeah thanks so much for having Happy me world food day thank you <laughs> and I had to check with Giles when I was getting him on the phone that nothing had changed in the couple of hours I've been on air uh, because far from settling down, Australia's climate and energy policy instability is getting pretty crazy. Um, Not only did Tony Abbott make that speech, outing himself as a complete climate change denier, but because Energy Minister Josh Frydenberg gave very strong impressions last week that the government may choose against taking the chief scientist, Ellen Finkel's recommendation to replace the renewable energy target with... With that clean energy target when we see the end of the RET in 2020. Uh, To talk more about it is Giles Parkinson. He's from Renew Economy and it's great to have you Giles and yeah things are kind of stable at the moment in the sense that we're waiting for imminent energy policy announcements today or tomorrow.
3: Well, we've been waiting for imminent energy policy announcements for about a decade, I think, so I'm not too sure whether we're going to get anything um, anything too interesting today or tomorrow, but look, as you say, it could actually sort of confirm the stupidity of Australia's um, energy environment at the moment. Um, you, know, you mentioned Tony Abbott's speech last week talking about how climate change is actually good for the planet. Um, I think that sort of fairly well sums up um, the uh, problem with Australia's policy over the last few years. It's been dominated by the right wing of the coalition who simply do not accept the science of climate change. Um, they don't want to accept um, that renewables are cheaper, or when they do, they want to use u- use it as an excuse to um, cancel all policies. Um and um, we've just about sort of hit, hit, hit sort of peak stupid, really, on, on, on all fronts.
0: Well, we did hear the Energy Minister uh, reinforcing the fact that the Finkel report recommendations, uh, the government's accepted 49 of them. Uh, the 50th is the clean energy target, and it looks like they're not going to pick up that one. We don't know for sure. Does it matter if we pick it up or not, Giles?
3: Look, look, whether it's this one or not, um, what does matter is that we just need some sort of certainty. We know that we have to reduce emissions. We know that we need to be able to give some sort of guidance to people who invest in the energy industry, whether they're people who invest in coal, gas, um, renewables or whatever. They actually need to know what the policy framework looks like. So we do need a a policy framework, um, but we also need one that actually reduces emissions. Now, the excuse for backing away from a clean energy target, I mean, just a couple of weeks ago they were saying, oh, renewables are too expensive. If we have a clean energy target, it's going to cost everyone too much. Now they're suddenly saying, oh, renewables are too cheap. We don't need a clean energy target. But we actually do need some sort of policy. So actually get a policy in place the fact that renewables have come down is actually a reason why we should have a clean energy target because we know it's actually not going to cost us very much money. In fact, it's likely to save us money. We just need that policy certainty because otherwise people just don't invest. And we've seen the consequences of that lack of investment over the last few years, um, just in the last um, 12 months with the wholesale electricity prices soaring through the roof. um, And that's been reflected on the electricity bills which people are now getting for the last three months. And that's all because we didn't invest... And that's just reinforced the power of the oligopoly who can control the coal and the gas fired power stations. And they've been allowed to bid whatever they want um, into the market. And that's been the biggest driver um, of wholesale costs.
0: Do you think of the understanding of the clean energy target, because as you say, the, the kind of rhetorics changed first, renewables were too expensive, and then they're now they're too cheap and they don't actually need a subsidy, but uh, my understanding of a clean energy target is that it, it will make the difference, or that kind of uh, incentive will, will make the difference between a kind of chaotic transition to a new way of doing energy in Australia or a really a smooth, well-planned transition. Is that how you see it?
3: Well, that's exactly right, yeah, because, I mean, even though renewables are cheaper, it's actually quite hard to get them into the market because most of the people that build renewables um, are only doing so because they've been told to by the government because if you let the likes of Origin and AGL and NG Australia and the other big uh, retailers have it their own way, they're going to still use them, assets that they've built, you know, 30, 40 or 50 years ago and they're making so much money out of. Um, because they control the market. To, to actually sort of affect this transition, you just need to be able to sort of set a target, say we want emissions to reduce by X amount by 2030 or 2040 or 2050. Um, you guys decide how you do that, and I'm pretty confident that's, that's going to be with renewables and, um, and other forms of storage. But you need to set that target, otherwise nothing will change apart from having consumers households and your listeners turning increasingly to um, solar and storage um corporates also increasingly turn to wind and solar that's great but it just needs to we can do this so much more cheaply so much more efficiently um if we actually have a proper policy and one of the reasons why we have such expensive um electricity at the moment is because it's just been random it's just been uncoordinated and we've just let the big utilities just get away with blue murder. It's just outrageous what we pay for electricity at the moment and we just don't need to pay that much.
0: Yeah, we've just heard from the ACCC that uh, power prices have gone up 60% in the decade. A lot of that is because of the what you know what's called the gold plating of poles and wires. But if we can move on to the in- industry and sort of business response to the current situation, uh, Giles, the Business Council came out and basically said if we're not going to have a clean energy target, give us something else. What else is on the
3: table? Well, nothing else is actually on the table. I mean, people have got different ideas about what could be done. Um, we may have to rely on state-based targets and um, other different mechanisms, but basically there is nothing on the table. Um and that's why the Business Council wants to get involved with um, framing some sort of policy. Mind you, I've got very little sympathy with the Business Council of Australia. They've been one of the people who have really fought against any sensible policy um, in the past. We had a fantastic carbon price under the Labor government. They fought ferociously against that to protect their um, vested interests, um, and they just simply want something that's sort of weakened down and is as, as, as light as policy. So I don't really... Um, I don't really care much about what they say, And he talked about Rod Sims as well, the um, Australian Competition and um, Consumer Commission, with their report his report that came out today talking about price rises. That report angered me so much because he actually sort of said, "Well, yes, it's because of the gold plating of the networks that we can't do much about that." And yes, the wholesale prices are way above what they should be, but we can't really do much about that because they're acting in an economically rational way, and we're not going to do much about that but maybe we shouldn't have a clean energy target because that'll encourage more renewables and impose costs on people. I couldn't, I, I couldn't believe what he was saying. I mean, I just thought that was extraordinary and just completely, um, it, just, it just explained why we're in such a mess because you've just got this absolute racket of the vested interests of these other people, part of the industry, and um, they're all there protecting each other.
0: Um, Giles Parkinson, Renew Economies, um, speaking with us. We're talking about climate and energy policy and the lack thereof, really. Uh, And I suppose we're waiting to see if this might be fixed up this week or not. And uh, talking about people trying new things, we saw AEMO, uh, the energy market operator, come out with some ideas this week as well, saying, consumers, maybe you can... Uh, here's an incentive if you turn power off that you don't need it at the right time, we might give you some some money back on your bills or a movie ticket or something like that. What do you think of these kinds of demand-side uh, demand initiatives, Giles? They're really
3: smart. They're really clever. Um, as AEMO boss Audrey Ziegman pointed out, these things actually just, you know, we, we waste so much electricity we use it at the wrong time and there's actually a smarter way of operating things. So, we, we, you know, when demand goes up, rather than just switching on a diesel generator and paying huge amounts of money for it, why don't we just sort of you know, have a smart way of actually using electricity? So you've got some metal manufacturers who say, well, we can just turn down the phone, at, turn down the level of our furnaces for a couple of hours. That's absolutely no problem for us, and that'll reduce demand. These sort of things have actually been used in most um, Western countries for the last 10, 15, 20 years. They've been used in Western Australia for the last oh, say, 10 years, 15 years, they've been used in Queensland just by shifting your hot water system um, to the night time, um, which actually, actually happens across Australia. It's been happening for ages. It's got nothing to do with renewables, yet the response in the mainstream media to it was, I just thought, breathtakingly bad. They were all sort of saying, oh, no, people will have their air conditioning turned off and the kids have to run round to the neighbours because they be, won't be able to cope in the heat. Um, yet more scare campaigns and yet more just playing into the um, interests of the people who want to um, switch on those um, coal and gas-fired generators and chargers as much as they possibly can.
0: It's really interesting in the context of all the things we've just spoken about that at the Oil Energy Conference last week, it was a really upbeat affair. Uh, The people working in renewable energy see a lot of opportunity. the transition is really seen as inevitable, uh, that there's going to be a a place there for renewable companies and initiatives and innovations, regardless of what happens. Is that... I mean, you were down there. Was that the kind of vibe that you picked up as well?
3: Oh, absolutely, yeah. No, it was bigger than it's ever been, and I think the mood was more positive than it's ever been. That's because most consumers, be they household or business, now understand what they can do about their energy bills, and that's sort of turning to solar and storage. You're getting increasing amounts of smart software... Um, so people really see that as an avenue to lowering prices. And it's really interesting. Another report came out today from a consultant, um, Energy Synapse, which is commissioned by Solar Citizen, which actually points to the huge savings to the community in general. From everyone having rooftop solar, I think there's 1.6 million houses and businesses have already got rooftop solar. It talks about the reduction in the wholesale prices below what it would have been if there hadn't been any rooftop solar. So there's actually a great society benefit from everyone having rooftop solar. And as more and more people have that installed and there's more and more intention... Um, is made to making sure that low-income houses have um, rooftop solar and battery storage and all those things. So we're just going to see this massive transition between this centralised generation to what's called um, decentralised generation. You know, within two decades, half of all our demand is going to come from these sort of um, pieces of equipment, and that's going to be a good thing. It's the democratisation of energy. It'll keep prices down, and it'll just make for a cleaner, smarter cheaper and even more reliable
0: grid um, and when i was sort of looking around this sort of what do you call it the expo down at all energy uh, it seemed to me that a lot of companies have been around for some time and there's a lot of resilience in that sector even though times have been pretty lean for some of them for, for many years there also seems to be a lot of international entrance as well are you seeing that a lot of the innovation is coming from overseas or or do we have homegrown stuff happening in australia as well
3: it's actually a little homegrown stuff happening, particularly in the software and some of the business model development. So, if you think about the solar manufacturers and the um, inverters, you know the hardware that tends to come from overseas because they've simply got that scale of manufacturing, which um, lowers the prices, just means they can beat everybody else. So, they're all international. But when you come to the software thing, so you've got companies like GreenSync, you've got Reposit, you've got um, Redback Technologies, and you've got Solar Analytics. Um, they're all Australian companies, all Australian-based software, and they. Playing an absolutely crucial role because having this smart software, with can then control, um, you know, the heavy pieces of machinery, the solar panels, and the inverters and the, and, and the storage. That's what actually makes this technology really exciting and really responsive.
0: Very interesting stuff. Well. Uh Who knows what we might be talking about next time we have you on, Giles, Um, but people can keep up to date with what's happening with um, climate and energy policy by heading to Renew Economy online, and um, there's a great newsletter that you can sign up to as well. Thanks so much for being on Triple R again.
3: Well, thanks for having me, and look, let's hope that um, um, 70 rules, but um, I wouldn't
0: hold my breath. Uh, let's not do that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <get> thanks, <laughs> thanks, Giles. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.